nightly visits to Lady Miseria, whose bed he off-shared whilst at court, with the Queen's blessing purportedly. Nor should it be forgotten that during his youth every brothel-keeper in King's Landing knew that Lord Fleabottom took an especial delight in maidens, and kept aside the youngest, prettiest, and more innocent of their new girls for him to deflower. The girl Nettles was young beyond a doubt, though perhaps not as young as those the prince had debauched in his youth, but it seems doubtful that she was a true maiden. Growing up homeless, motherless, and penniless on the streets of Spice Town and Hull, she would most likely have surrendered her innocence not long after her first flowering, if not before, in return for half a groat or a crust of bread, and the sheep she fed to sheep-stealer to bind him to her, how would she have come by those, if not by lifting her skirts for some shepherd? Nor could Nettie truly be called pretty. A skinny brown girl on a skinny brown dragon, writes Munken in his true telling, though he never saw her. Septon Eustace says her teeth were crooked, her nose scarred where it had once been slit for thieving. Hardly a likely paramour for a prince, one would think. Against that, we have the testimony of Mushroom, and, in this case, the Chronicles of Maidenpool, as set down by Lord Moton's maester. Maester Noran writes that the prince and his bastard girl supped together every night, broke their fast together every morning, slept in adjoining bedchambers that the prince doted upon the brown girl as a man might dote upon his daughter, instructing her in common courtesies, and how to dress, and sit, and brush her hair, that he made gifts to her of an ivory-handled hairbrush, a silvered looking-glass, a cloak of rich brown velvet bordered in satin, a pair of riding-boots of leather soft as butter. The prince taught the girl to wash, Norrin says, and the maidservants who fetched their bath-water said he oft shared a tub with her, soaping her back or washing the dragon stink from her hair, both of them as naked as their name-days. None of this constitutes proof that Damon Targaryen had carnal knowledge of the bastard girl, but in light of what followed we must surely judge that more likely than most of Mushroom's tales. Yet however these dragon-riders spent their nights, it is a certainty that their days were spent prowling the skies, hunting after Prince Aemond and Vagar without success. So let us leave them for the nonce and turn our gaze briefly across Blackwater Bay. It was about this time that a battered merchant cog named Nasseria came limping into the harbour beneath Dragonstone to make repairs and take on provisions. She had been returning from Pentos to Old Volantis when a storm drove her off course, her crew said but to this common song of peril at sea, the Volantines added a queer note. As Nasseria beat westward, the Dragonmont loomed up before them, huge against the setting sun, and the sailors spied two dragons fighting, their roars echoing off the sheer black cliffs of the smoking mountain's eastern flanks. In every tavern, inn, and whorehouse along the waterfront the tale was told, retold and embroidered, till every man on Dragonstone had heard it. Dragons were a wonder to the men of old Volantis. The sight of two in battle was one the men of Nasseria would never forget. Those born and bred on Dragonstone had grown up with such beasts, yet even so the sailor's story excited interest. The next morning, some local fisherfolk took their boats around the Dragonmont and returned to report seeing the burned and broken remains of a dead dragon at the mountain's base. From the colour of its wings and scales, the carcass was that of grey ghosts. 
The dragon lay in two pieces and had been torn apart and partially devoured. On hearing this news, Sir Robert Quince, the amiable and famously obese knight whom the Queen had named Castellan of Dragonstone upon her departure, was quick to name the cannibal as the killer. Most agreed, for the cannibal had been known to attack smaller dragons in the past, though seldom so savagely. Some amongst the fisherfolk, fearing that the killer might turn upon them next, urged Quince to dispatch knights to the beast's lair to put an end to him, but the castellan refused. If we do not trouble him, the cannibal will not trouble us, he declared. To be certain of that, he forbade fishing in the waters beneath the dragonmont's eastern face, where the vanquished dragon's body lay rotting. His decree did not satisfy his restless charge, Bela Targaryen, Prince Daemon's daughter by his first wife, Lena Valerian. At ten and four, Bela was a wild and willful young maiden, more boyish than ladylike and very much her father's daughter. Though slim and short of stature, she knew naught of fear and lived to dance and hawk and ride. As a younger girl, she had oft been chastised for wrestling with squires in the yard, but of late she had taken to playing kissing games with them instead. Not long after the Queen's court removed to King's Landing, whilst leaving Lady Baylor on Dragonstone, Baylor had been caught allowing a kitchen scullion to slip his hand inside her jerkin. Sir Robert, outraged, had sent the boy to the block to have the offending hand removed. Only the girl's tearful intercession had saved him. She is overly fond of boys, the castellan wrote Baylor's father, Prince Damon, after that incident, and should be married soon, lest she surrender her virtue to someone unworthy of her. Even more than boys, however, Lady Baylor loved to fly. Since first riding her dragon, Moondancer, into the sky not half a year past, she had flown every day ranging freely to every part of Dragonstone and even across the sea to Driftmark. Always eager for adventure, the girl now proposed to find the truth of what had happened on the other side of the mountain for herself. She had no fear of the cannibal, she told Sir Robert. Moondancer was younger and faster. She could easily outfly the other dragon. But the castellan forbade her taking any such risk. The garrison was given strict instructions. Lady Baylor was not to leave the castle. When caught attempting to defy his command that very night, the angry maiden was confined to her chambers. Though understandable, this proved in hindsight to be unfortunate. For had Lady Baylor been allowed to fly, she might have spied the fishing boat that was even then making its way around the island. Aboard was an aged fisherman called Tom Tanglebeard, his son Tom Tangletongue, and two cousins from Driftmark, left homeless when Spice Town was destroyed. The younger Tom, as handy with a tankard as he was clumsy with a net, had spent a deal of time buying drinks for volunteer sailors and listening to their accounts of the dragons they had seen fighting. Grey and gold they was, flashing in the sun, one man said. And now, in defiance of Sir Robert's prohibition, the two Toms were intent on delivering their cousins to the stony strand where the dead dragon sprawled, burned and broken, so they might seek after his slayer. Meanwhile, on the western shore of Blackwater Bay, word of battle and betrayal at Tumbleton had reached King's Landing. It is said the Dowager Queen Alicent laughed when she heard. All they have sowed, now shall they reap, she promised. On the Iron Throne, Queen Rhaenyra grew pale and faint, 
and ordered the city gates closed and barred. Henceforth, no one was to be allowed to enter or leave King's Landing. I will have no turncloaks stealing into my city to open my gates to rebels, she proclaimed. Lord Ormond's host could be outside their walls by the morrow or the day after. The betrayers, dragonborn, could arrive even sooner than that. This prospect excited Prince Joffrey. Let them come, the boy announced, flush with the arrogance of youth and eager to avenge his fallen brothers. I will meet them on Taraxes. Such talk alarmed his mother. You will not she declared. You are too young for battle. Even so, she allowed the boy to remain as the Black Council discussed how best to deal with the approaching foe. Six dragons remained in King's Landing, but only one within the walls of the Red Keep, the Queen's own she-dragon, Syrax. A stable in the outer ward had been emptied of horses and given over for her use. Heavy chains bound her to the ground, Though long enough to allow her to move from stable to yard, the chains kept her from flying off riderless. Syrax had long grown accustomed to chains, exceedingly well-fed, she had not hunted for years. The other dragons were kept in the dragon pit. Beneath its great dome, forty huge undervaults had been carved from the bones of the Hill of Rhaenys in a great ring. Thick iron doors closed these man-made caves at either end, the inner doors fronting on the sands of the pit, the outer opening to the hillside. Caraxes, Vermithor, Silverwing, and Sheepstealer had made their lairs there before flying off to battle. Five dragons remained. Prince Joffrey's Taraxes, Adam Valerian's pale grey sea smoke, the young dragons Morgul and Shrikos, bound to Princess Jehera, fled, and her twin, Prince Jeheris, dead, and Dreamfire, beloved of Queen Helena. It had long been the custom for at least one dragon rider to reside at the pit so as to be able to rise to the defence of the city should the need arise. As Rhaenyra preferred to keep her sons by her side, that duty fell to Adam Valerian. But now voices on the Black Council were raised to question Sir Adam's loyalty. The dragon seeds Ulf White and Hugh Hammer had gone over to the enemy, but were they the only traitors in their midst? What of Adam of Hull and the girl Nettles? They had been born of bastard stock as well. Could they be trusted? Lord Bartimus Keltigar thought not. Bastards are treacherous by nature, he said. It is in their blood. Betrayal comes as easily to a bastard as loyalty to true-born men. He urged her grace to have the two base-born dragon riders seized immediately, before they too could join the enemy with their dragons. Others echoed his views, amongst them Sir Luther Largent commander of her city watch, and Sir Laurent Marbrand, lord commander of her queen's guard. Even the two white harbour men, that fearsome knight Sir Medric Manderley and his clever, corpulent brother Sir Torren, urged the queen to mistrust. Best take no chances, Sir Torren said. If the foe gains two more dragons, we are lost. Only Lord Corlys and Grand Maester Gerardis spoke in defence of the dragon seeds. The Grand Maester said that they had no proof of any disloyalty on the parts of Nettles and Sir Adam. The path of wisdom was to seek such proof before making any judgments. Lord Corlys went much further, declaring that Sir Adam and his brother Alan were true Valerians, worthy heirs to Driftmark. As for the girl, though she might be dirty and ill-favoured, she had fought valiantly in the Battle of the Gullet. 
as did the two betrayers, Lord Keltigar countered. The Hand's impassioned protests and the Grand Maester's cool caution both proved to be in vain. The Queen's suspicions had been aroused. Her grace had been betrayed so often by so many that she was quick to believe the worst of any man, Septon Eustace writes. Treachery no longer had the power to surprise her. She had come to expect it, even from those she loved the most. It might be so, yet Queen Rhaenyra did not act at once, but rather sent for Miseria, the harlot and dancing girl who was her mistress of whisperers in all but name. With her skin as pale as milk, Lady Misery appeared before the council in a hooded robe of black velvet, lined with blood-red silk, and stood with head bowed humbly, as her grace asked whether she thought Sir Adam and Nettles might be planning to betray them. Then the white worm raised her eyes and said in a soft voice, The girl has already betrayed you, my queen. Even now she shares your husband's bed, and soon enough she will have his bastard in her belly. Then Queen Rhaenyra grew most wroth, Septon Eustace writes. In a voice as cold as ice, she commanded Sir Luther Largent to take twenty gold cloaks to the dragon pit and arrest Sir Adam Valerian. Question him sharply, and we will learn if he is true or false beyond a doubt. As to the girl Nettles, she is a common thing with the stink of sorcery upon her, the queen declared. My prince would ne'er lay with such a low creature— you need only look at her to know she has no drop of dragon's blood in her. It was with spells that she bound a dragon to her, and she has done the same with my lord husband. So long as he was in the girl's thrall, Prince Damon could not be relied upon, her grace went on. Therefore let a command be sent at once to Maidenpool, but only for the eyes of Lord Mooton. Let him take her at table or a bed and strike her head off. Only then shall my prince be freed. And thus, did betrayal beget more betrayal to the Queen's undoing? As Sir Luther Largent and his gold cloaks rode up Rhaenys's hill with the Queen's warrant, the doors of the dragon pit were thrown open above them, and sea smoke spread his pale grey wings and took flight, smoke rising from his nostrils. Sir Adam Valerian had been forewarned, in time to make his escape. Balked and angry, Sir Luther returned at once to the Red Keep, where he burst into the Tower of the Hand and laid rough hands on the aged Lord Corlys, accusing him of treachery. Nor did the old man deny it. Bound and beaten, but still silent, he was taken down into the dungeons and thrown into a black cell to await trial and execution. The Queen's suspicion fell upon Grand Maester Gerardus as well, for like the sea snake he had defended the dragon seeds. Gerardus denied having any part in Lord Corlys's betrayal. Mindful of his long, leal service to her, Rhaenyra spared the Grand Maester the dungeons, but chose instead to dismiss him from her council and sent him back to Dragonstone at once. I do not think you would lie to my face, she told Gerardus, but I cannot have men around me that I do not trust implicitly, and when I look at you now all I can recall is how you prated at me about the Nettles girl. All the while, tales of the slaughter at Tumbleton were spreading through the city, and with them, terror. King's Landing would be next, men told one another. A dragon would fight dragon, and this time the city would surely burn. Fearful of the coming foe, hundreds tried to flee, only to be turned back at the gates by the gold cloaks. Trapped within the city walls, some sought shelter in deep cellars against the firestorm they feared was coming, 
whilst others turned to prayer, to drink, and the pleasures to be found between a woman's thighs. By nightfall, the city's taverns, brothels, and septs were full to bursting with men and women seeking solace or escape, and trading tales of horror. It was in this dark hour that there rose up in Cobbler's Square a certain itinerant brother, a barefoot scarecrow of a man in a hair shirt and rough-spun breeches, filthy and unwashed and smelling of the sty, with a begging bowl hung round his neck on a leather thong. A thief he had been, for where his right hand should have been was only a stump covered by ragged leather. Grand Maester Monken suggests he might have been a poor fellow, Though that order had long been outlawed, wandering stars still haunted the byways of the Seven Kingdoms. Where he came from we cannot know. Even his name is lost to history. Those who heard him preach, like those who would later record his infamy, knew him only as the Shepherd. Mushroom names him the Dead Shepherd, for he claims the man was as pale and foul as a corpse fresh risen from its grave. Whoever or whatever he might have been, this one-handed shepherd rose up like some malign spirit, calling down doom and destruction on Queen Rhaenyra to all who came to hear. As tireless as he was fearless, he preached all night and well into the following day, his angry voice ringing across Cobbler's Square. Dragons were unnatural creatures, the shepherd declared, demons summoned from the pits of the seven hells by the fell sorceries of Valyria that vile cesspit where brother lay with sister and mother with son, where men rode demons into battle whilst their women spread their legs for dogs. The Targaryens had escaped the doom, fleeing across the seas to Dragonstone, but the gods are not mocked, and now a second doom was at hand. The false king and the whore queen shall be cast down with all their works, and their demon beasts shall perish from the earth, the shepherd thundered. All those who stood with them would die as well. Only by cleansing King's Landing of dragons and their masters could Westeros hope to avoid the fate of Valyria. Each hour his crowds grew. A dozen listeners became a score, and then a hundred. And by break of dawn thousands were crowding into the square, shoving and pushing as they strained to hear. Many clutched torches, and by nightfall the shepherd stood amidst a ring of fire. Those who tried to shout him down were savaged by the crowd. Even the gold cloaks were driven off when forty of them attempted to clear the square at spear point. A different sort of chaos reigned in Tumbleton, sixty leagues to the southwest. Whilst King's Landing quailed in terror, the foes they feared had yet to advance a foot toward the city, for King Aegon's loyalists found themselves leaderless, beset by division, conflict, and doubt. Ormond Hightower lay dead along with his cousin, Sir Brynden, the foremost knight of Old Town. His sons remained back at the high tower a thousand leagues away and were green boys besides, and whilst Lord Ormond had dubbed Daron Targaryen Daron the Daring and praised his courage in battle, the prince was still a boy. The youngest of Queen Alicent's sons, he had grown up in the shadow of his elder brothers and was more used to following commands than giving them. The most senior high tower remaining with the host was Sir Hobart, another of Lord Ormond's cousins, hitherto entrusted only with the baggage train. A man as stout as he was slow, Hobart Hightower had lived sixty years without distinguishing himself, yet now he presumed to take command of the host by right of his kinship to Queen Alicent.
Lord Unwin Peake, Sir John Roxton the Bold, and Lord Owain Borney stepped forward as well. Lord Peake could boast descent from a long line of famous warriors, and had a hundred knights and nine hundred men-at-arms beneath his banners. John Roxton was as feared for his black temper as for his black blade, the Valyrian steel sword called Orphan Maker. Lord Owain the Betrayer insisted that his cunning had won them Tumbleton, that only he could take King's Landing. None of the claimants was powerful and respected enough to curb the bloodlust and avarice of the common soldiers. Whilst they squabbled over precedence and plunder, their own men joined freely in the orgy of looting, rape, and destruction. The horrors of those days cannot be gainsaid. Seldom has any town or city in the history of the Seven Kingdoms been subject to as long, or as cruel, or as savage a sack as Tumbleton after the treasons. Without a strong lord to restrain them, even good men can turn to beasts. So was it here. Bands of soldiers wandered drunkenly through the streets, robbing every home and shop, and slaying any man who tried to stay their hands. Every woman was fair prey for their lust, even crones and little girls. Wealthy men were tortured unto death to force them to reveal where they had hidden their gold and gems. Babes were torn from their mother's arms and impaled upon the points of spears. Holy scepters were chased naked through the streets and raped, not by one man, but by a hundred. Silent sisters were violated. Even the dead were not spared. Instead of being given honorable burial, their corpses were left to rot, fodder for carrion crows and wild dogs. Septon Eustace and Grand Maester Munken both assert that Prince Darren was sickened by all he saw and commanded Sir Hobart Hightower to put a stop to it. But Hightower's efforts proved as ineffectual as the man himself. It is in the nature of small folk to follow where their lords lead, and Lord Ormond's would-be successors had themselves fallen victim to avarice, bloodlust, and pride. Bold John Roxton became enamoured of the beautiful Lady Sharis Footley, the wife of the Lord of Tumbleton, and claimed her as a prize of war. When her lord husband protested, Sir John cut him nigh in two with orphan maker, saying, She can make widows too, as he tore the gown from the weeping Lady Sharis. Only two days later, Lord Peake and Lord Borney argued bitterly at a war council, until Peake drew his dagger and stabbed Borney through the eye, declaring, Once a turncloak, ever a turncloak, as Prince Darren and Sir Hobart looked on, horror-struck. Yet the worst crimes were those committed by the two betrayers, the base-born dragon-riders Hugh Hammer and Ulf White. Sir Ulf gave himself over entirely to drunkenness, drowning himself in wine and flesh. Mushroom says he raped three maidens every night. Those who failed to please were fed to his dragon. The knighthood that Queen Rhaenyra had conferred on him did not suffice, nor was he surfeit when Prince Darren named him Lord of Bitterbridge. White had a greater prize in mind. He desired no less a seat than Highgarden, declaring that the Tyrells had played no part in the dance and therefore should be attainted as traitors. Sir Ulf's ambitions must be accounted modest when compared to those of his fellow turned cloak, Hugh Hammer. The son of a common blacksmith, Hammer was a huge man, with hands so strong that he was said to be able to twist steel bars into torques. Though largely untrained in the art of war, his size and strength made him a fearsome foe. His weapon of choice was the war hammer, 
with which he delivered crushing, killing blows. In battle he rode Varmithor, once the mount of the old king himself. Of all the dragons in Westeros, only Vagar was older or larger. For all these reasons, Lord Hammer, as he now styled himself, began to dream of crowns. Why be a lord when you can be a king? he told the men who began to gather round him. And talk was heard in camp of a prophecy of ancient days that said, When the hammer shall fall upon the dragon, a new king shall arise, and none shall stand before him. Whence came these words remains a mystery, not from Hammer himself, who could neither read nor write, but within a few days every man at Tumbleton had heard them. Neither of the two betrayers seemed eager to help Prince Darren press an attack on King's Landing. They had a great host and three dragons besides, yet the Queen had three dragons as well, as best they knew, and would have five once Prince Damon returned with nettles. Lord Peake preferred to delay any advance until Lord Baratheon could bring up his power from Storm's End to join them, whilst Sir Hobart wished to fall back to the Reach to replenish their fast-dwindling supplies. None seemed concerned that their army was shrinking every day, melting away like morning dew as more and more men deserted, stealing off for home and harvest with all the plunder they could carry. Long leagues to the north, in a castle overlooking the Bay of Crabs, another lord found himself sliding down a sword's edge as well. From King's Landing came a raven, bearing the Queen's message to Manfred Mouton, lord of Maidenpool. He was to deliver her the head of the bastard girl Nettles, who had been judged guilty of high treason. No harm is to be done, my lord husband, Prince Damon of House Targaryen, her grace commanded. Send him back to me when the deed is done, for we have urgent need of him. Maester Norren, keeper of the Chronicles of Maidenpool, says that when his lordship read the Queen's letter, he was so shaken that he lost his voice, nor did it return to him until he had drunk three cups of wine. Thereupon Lord Mouton sent for the captain of his guard, his brother, and his champion, Sir Florian Greysteel. He bade his maester to remain as well. When all had assembled, he read to them the letter and asked them for their counsel. This thing is easily done said the captain of his guard. The prince sleeps beside her, but he has grown old. Three men shall be enough to subdue him should he try to interfere, but I will take six to be certain. Does my lord wish this done tonight? Six men or sixty, he is still Damon Targaryen, Lord Mouton's brother objected. A sleeping draught in his evening wine would be the wiser course. Let him wake to find her dead. The girl is but a child, however foul her treasons, said Sir Florian, that old knight, grey and grizzled and stern. The old king would never have asked this of any man of honour. These are foul times, Lord Mouton said, and it is a foul choice this queen has given me. The girl is a guest beneath my roof. If I obey, Maidenpool shall be forever cursed. If I refuse, we shall be attainted and destroyed to which his brother answered, It may be we shall be destroyed whatever choice we make. The prince is more than fond of this brown child, and his dragon is close at hand. A wise lord would kill them both, lest the prince burn Maidenpool in his wrath. The queen has forbidden any harm to come to him, Lord Mouton reminded them, and murdering two guests in their beds is twice as foul as murdering one. I should be doubly cursed. Thereupon he sighed and said, would that I had never read this letter.
And up spoke Maester Norren, saying, Mayhaps you never did. What was said after that, the chronicles of Maidenpool do not tell us. All we know is that the Maester, a young man of two and twenty, found Prince Damon and the girl Nettles at their supper that night, and showed them the Queen's letter. Weary after a long day of fruitless flight, they were sharing a simple meal of boiled beef and beets when I entered, talking softly with each other of what I cannot say. The prince greeted me politely, but as he read I saw the joy go from his eyes, and a sadness descended upon him like a weight too heavy to be borne. When the girl asked what was in the letter, he said, A queen's words, a whore's work. Then he drew his sword and asked if Lord Mooton's men were waiting outside to take them captive. I came alone, I told him, then forswore myself, declaring falsely that neither his lordship nor any other man of Maidenpool knew what was written on the parchment. Forgive me, my prince, I said. I have broken my maester's vows. Prince Damon sheathed his sword, saying, You are a bad maester, but a good man, after which he bade me leave them, commanding me to speak no word of this to lord nor love until the morrow. How the prince and his bastard girl spent their last night beneath Lord Mooton's roof is not recorded. But as dawn broke, they appeared together in the yard, and Prince Damon helped Nettles saddle Sheepstealer one last time. It was her custom to feed him each day before she flew. Dragons bend easier to their rider's will when full. That morning she fed him a black ram, the largest in all Maidenpool, slitting the ram's throat herself. Her riding leathers were stained with blood when she mounted her dragon, Maester Norrin records, and her cheeks were stained with tears. No word of farewell was spoken betwixt man and maid, but a sheep-stealer beat his leathery brown wings and climbed into the dawn sky, Caraxes raised his head and gave a scream that shattered every window in Jonquil's tower. High above the town, Nettles turned her dragon toward the Bay of Crabs and vanished in the morning mists, never to be seen again at court or castle. Damon Targaryen returned to the castle just long enough to break his fast with Lord Mooton. This is the last that you will see of me, he told his lordship. I thank you for your hospitality. Let it be known through all your lands that I fly for Harrenhal. If my nephew Aemond dares face me, he shall find me there, alone. Thus Prince Damon departed Maidenpool for the last time. When he had gone, Maester Norrin went to his lord to say, Take the chain from my neck and bind my hands with it. You must needs deliver me to the queen. When I gave warning to a traitor and allowed her to escape, I became a traitor as well. Lord Mooton refused. Keep your chain, his lordship said. We are all traitors here. And that night Queen Rhaenyra's quartered banners were taken down from where they flew above the gates of Maidenpool, and the golden dragons of King Aegon II raised in their stead. No banners flew above the blackened towers and ruined keeps of Harrenhal when Prince Damon descended from the sky to claim the castle for his own. A few squatters had found shelter in the castle's deep vaults and undercellars, but the sound of Caraxes's wings sent them fleeing. When the last of them was gone, Damon Targaryen walked the cavernous halls of Harren's seat alone, with no companion but his dragon. Each night at dusk he slashed the heart tree in the godswood to mark the passing of another day. Thirteen marks can be seen upon that weirwood still. Old wounds, deep and dark. 
Yet the lords who have ruled Howden Hall since Damon's day say they bleed afresh every spring. On the fourteenth day of the prince's vigil, a shadow swept over the castle, blacker than any passing cloud. All the birds in the godswood took to the air in fright, and a hot wind whipped the fallen leaves across the yard. Vagar had come at last, and on her back rode the one-eyed Prince Aemond Targaryen, clad in night-black armor, chased with gold. He had not come alone. Alice Rivers flew with him, her long hair streaming black behind her, her belly swollen with child. Prince Aemond circled twice about the towers of Harren Hall, then brought Vagar down in the outer ward, with Caraxes a hundred yards away. The dragons glared balefully at each other, and Caraxes spread his wings and hissed, flames dancing across his teeth. The prince helped his woman down from Vagar's back, then turned to face his uncle. Uncle, I hear you have been seeking us. Only you, Damon replied. Who told you where to find me? My lady, Aemond answered. She saw you in a storm cloud, in a mountain pool at dusk, in the fire we lit to cook our suppers. She sees much and more, my Alice. You were a fool to come alone. Were I not alone, you would not have come, said Damon. Yet you are, and here I am. You have lived too long, uncle. On that much we agree, Damon replied. Then the old prince bade Caraxes bend his neck and climbed stiffly onto his back, whilst the young prince kissed his woman and vaulted lightly onto Vega, taking care to fasten the four short chains between belt and saddle. Damon left his own chains dangling. Caraxes hissed again, filling the air with flame, and Vagar answered with a roar. As one, the two dragons leapt into the sky. Prince Damon took Caraxes up swiftly, lashing him with a steel-tipped whip until they disappeared into a bank of clouds. Vega, older and much the larger, was also slower, made ponderous by her very size, and ascended more gradually in ever-widening circles that took her and her rider out over the waters of the god's eye. The hour was late, the sun was close to setting, and the lake was calm, its surface glimmering like a sheet of beaten copper. Up and up she soared, searching for Caraxes as Alice Rivers watched from atop Kingspire Tower in Harren Hall below. The attack came sudden as a thunderbolt. Caraxes dove down upon Vagar with a piercing shriek that was heard a dozen miles away, cloaked by the glare of the setting sun on Prince Aemon's blind side. The bloodworm slammed into the older dragon with terrible force. Their roars echoed across the god's eye as the two grappled and tore at one another, dark against a blood-red sky. So bright did their flames burn that fisherfolk below feared the clouds themselves had caught fire. Locked together, the dragons tumbled toward the lake. The bloodworm's jaws closed about Vagar's neck, her black teeth sinking deep into the flesh of the larger dragon. Even as Vagar's claws raked her belly open and Vagar's own teeth ripped away a wing, Caraxes bit deeper, worrying at the wound as the lake rushed up below them with terrible speed. And it was then, the tales tell us, that Prince Daemon Targaryen swung a leg over his saddle and leapt from one dragon to the other. In his hand was Dark Sister, the sword of Queen Visenya. 
As Aymond One-Eye looked up in terror, fumbling with the chains that bound him to his saddle, Damon ripped off his nephew's helm and drove the sword down into his blind eye so hard the point came out the back of the young prince's throat. Half a heartbeat later, the dragons struck the lake, sending up a gout of water that was said to have been as tall as Kingspire Tower. Neither man nor dragon could have survived such an impact, the fisherfolk who saw it said. Nor did they. Caraxes lived long enough to crawl back onto the land. Gutted, with one wing torn from his body and the waters of the lake smoking about him, the bloodworm found the strength to drag himself onto the lake shore, expiring beneath the walls of Harren Hall. Vagar's carcass plunged to the lake floor, the hot blood from the gaping wound in her neck bringing the water to a boil over her last resting place. When she was found, some years later, after the end of the Dance of the Dragons, Prince Aemon's armoured bones remained chained to her saddle, with Dark Sister thrust hilt deep through his eye socket. That Prince Daemon died as well, we cannot doubt. His remains were never found. But there are queer currents in that lake, and hungry fish as well. The singers tell us that the old prince survived the fall and afterward made his way back to the girl Nettles to spend the remainder of his days at her side. Such stories make for charming songs, but poor history. Even Mushroom gives the tale no credence. Nor shall we. It was upon the twenty-second day of the fifth moon of the year 130 AC when the dragons danced and died above the god's eye. Daemon Targaryen was nine and forty at his death. Prince Aemon had only turned twenty. Vega, the greatest of the Targaryen dragons since the passing of Beleriion the Black Dread, had counted one hundred eighty-one years upon the earth. Thus passed the last living creature from the days of Aegon's conquest, as dusk and darkness swallowed Black Harren's accursed seat. Yet so few were on hand to bear witness that it would be some time before word of Prince Damon's last battle became widely known. The Dying of the Dragons Rhaenyra Overthrown Back in King's Landing, Queen Rhaenyra was finding herself ever more isolated with every new betrayal. The suspected turncloak Adam Valerian had fled before he could be put to the question. His flight had proved his guilt, the white worm murmured. Lord Keltigar concurred and proposed a punishing new tax on any child born out of wedlock. Such a tax would not only replenish the crown's coffers, but might also rid the realm of thousands of bastards. Her grace had more pressing concerns than her treasury, however. By ordering the arrest of Adam Valerian, she had lost not only a dragon and a dragon rider, but her queen's hand as well, and more than half the army that had sailed from Dragonstone to seize the Iron Throne was made up of men sworn to House Valerian. When it became known that Lord Corlys languished in a dungeon under the Red Keep, they began to abandon her cause by the hundreds. Some made their way to Cobbler's Square to join the throngs gathered round the shepherd, whilst others slipped through postern gates or over the walls, intent on making their way back to Driftmark. Nor could those who remained be trusted. That was proved when two of the sea snakes' sworn swords, Sir Dennis Woodwright and Sir Thorin True, cut their way into the dungeons to free their lord. Their plans were betrayed to Lady Misery, 
by a horse Erthorin had been bedding, and the would-be rescuers were taken and hanged. The two knights died at dawn, kicking and writhing against the walls of the Red Keep as the nooses tightened round their necks. That very day, not long after sunset, another horror visited the Queen's court. Helena Targaryen, sister, wife, and queen to King Aegon II, and mother of his children, threw herself from her window in Magor's holdfast to die impaled upon the iron spikes that lined the dry moat below. She was but one and twenty. After half a year of captivity, why should Aegon's queen choose this night to end her life? Mushroom asserts that Helena was with child after her days and nights of being sold for a common whore, but this explanation is only as creditable as his tale of the brothel queens, which is to say not creditable at all. Grand Maester Munken believes the horror of seeing Sir Thoron and Sir Dennis die drove her to the act, but if the young queen knew the two men it could only have been as jailers, and there is no evidence that she was a witness to their hanging. Septon Eustace suggests that Lady Miseria, the White Worm, chose this night to tell Helena of the death of her son Melor, and the grisly manner of his passing, though what motive she would have had for doing so beyond simple malice is hard to fathom. Maesters may argue about the truth of such assertions, but on that fateful night a darker tale was being told in the streets and alleys of King's Landing, in inns and brothels and pot shops, even holy set. Queen Helena had been murdered, the whispers went, as her sons had been before her. Prince Darren and his dragons would soon be at the gates, and with them the end of Rhaenyra's reign. The old queen was determined that her young half-sister should not live to revel in her downfall, so she had sent Sir Luthor Largent to seize Helena with his huge rough hands and fling her from the window onto the spikes below. Whence came this poisonous calumny, one might ask, for a calumny it most certainly is. Grand Maester Munken places it at the door of the shepherd, for thousands heard him decry both crime and queen. But did he originate the lie, or was he merely giving echo to words heard from other lips? The latter, Mushroom would have us believe. A slander so vile could only have been the work of Larry's Strong, the dwarf asserts, for the clubfoot had never left King's Landing, as would soon be revealed, but only slipped into its shadows, from whence he continued to plot and whisper. Could Helena's death have been murder? Possibly. But it seems unlikely Queen Rhaenyra was behind it. Helena Targaryen was a broken creature who posed no threat to her grace. Nor do our sources speak of any special enmity between them, if Rhaenyra were intent on murder, surely it would have been the dowager Queen Alicent flung down onto the spikes. Moreover, at the time of Queen Helena's death, we have abundant proof that Sir Luther Largent, a purported killer, was eating with three hundred of his gold cloaks at the barracks by the gate of the gods. All the same, the rumour of Queen Helena's murder was soon on the lips of half-King's Landing. That it was so quickly believed shows how utterly the city had turned against their once beloved queen. Rhaenyra was hated. Helena had been loved. Nor had the common folk of the city forgotten the cruel murder of Prince Jaehaerys by blood and cheese, and the terrible death of Prince Maelor at Bitterbridge. Helena's end had been mercifully swift, 
One of the spikes took her through the throat and she died without a sound. At the moment of her death, across the city atop the hill of Rainis, her dragon, Dreamfire, rose suddenly with a roar that shook the dragon pit, snapping two of the chains that bound her. When Dowager Queen Alicent was informed of her daughter's passing, she rent her garments and pronounced a dire curse upon her rival. That night, King's Landing rose in bloody riot. The rioting began amidst the alleys and wines of Flea Bottom, as men and women poured from the wine sinks, rat pits, and pot shops by the hundreds, angry, drunken, and afraid. From there, the riders spread throughout the city, shouting for justice for the dead princes and their murdered mother. Carts and wagons were overturned, shops looted, homes plundered and set afire. Gold cloaks attempting to quell the disturbances were set upon and beaten bloody. No one was spared, of high birth or low. Lords were pelted with rubbish, knights pulled from their saddles. Lady Darla Deddings saw her brother Davos stabbed through the eye when he tried to defend her from three drunken ostlers intent on raping her. Sailors, unable to return to their ships, attacked the river gate and fought a pitched battle with the city watch. It took Sir Luther Largent and four hundred spears to disperse them. By then, the gate had been hacked half to pieces and a hundred men were dead or dying a quarter of them gold cloaks. No such rescuers came for Lord Bartimus Keltigar, whose ward manse was defended only by six guardsmen and a few hastily armed servants. When rioters came swarming over the walls, these dubious defenders threw down their weapons and ran, or joined the attackers. Arthur Keltigar, a boy of fifteen, made a brave stand in a doorway, sword in hand, and kept the howling mob at bay for a few moments, until a treacherous serving girl let the rioters in through a back way. The brave lad was slain by a spear thrust through the back. Lord Bartimus himself fought his way to the stables, only to find all his horses dead or stolen. Taken, the Queen's despised master of coin was bound to a post and tortured until he revealed where all his wealth was hidden. Then a tanner called Watt announced that his lordship had failed to pay his cock tax and must yield his manhood to the crown as forfeit. At Cobbler's Square, the sounds of the riot could be heard from every quarter. The shepherd drank deep of the anger, proclaiming that the day of doom was nigh at hand, just as he had foretold, and calling down the wrath of the gods upon this unnatural queen who sits bleeding on the iron throne, her whore's lips glistening and red with the blood of her sweet sister. When a scepter in the crowd cried out, pleading for him to save the city, the shepherd said, Only the mother's mercy can save you, but you drove your mother from this city with your pride and lust and avarice. Now it is the stranger who comes. On a dark horse with burning eyes he comes, a scourge of fire in his hand to cleanse this pit of sin of demons and all who bow before them. Listen, can you hear the sound of burning hooves? He comes. He comes! The crowd took up the cry, wailing, He comes! He comes! as a thousand torches filled the square with pools of smoky yellow light. Soon enough, the shouts died away, and through the night the sound of iron hooves on cobblestones grew louder. Not one stranger, but five hundred, Mushroom says in his testimony. The city watch had come in strength, 
Five hundred men clad in black ringmail, steel caps and long golden cloaks, armed with short swords, spears and spiked cudgels. They formed up on the south side of the square behind a wall of shields and spears. At their head rode Sir Luther Largent, upon an armoured war-horse, a long-sword in his hand. The mere sight of him was enough to send hundreds streaming away into the wines and alleys and side-streets. Hundreds more fled when Sir Luther ordered the gold cloaks to advance. Ten thousand remained, however. The press was so thick that many who might gladly have fled found themselves unable to move, pushed and shoved and trod upon. Others surged forward, locked arms, and began to shout and curse as the spears advanced to the slow beat of a drum. Make way, you bloody fools, Sir Luther roared at the shepherd's lambs. Go home! No harm will come to you. Go home! We only want this shepherd. Some say the first man to die was a baker, who grunted in surprise when a spear point pierced his flesh and he saw his apron turning red. Others claim it was a little girl, trodden under by Sir Luther's war horse. A rock came flying from the crowd, striking a spearman on the brow. Shouts and curses were heard, sticks and stones and chamber pots came raining down from rooftops, an archer across the square began to loose his shafts, a torch was thrust at a watchman, and quick as that, his golden cloak was burning. On the far side of Cobbler's Square, the shepherd was bundled away by his acolytes. Stop him, Sir Luthor shouted. Seize him! Stop him! He spurred his horse, cutting his way through the throng, and his gold cloaks followed, discarding their spears to draw swords and cudgels. The shepherd's followers were screaming, falling, running. Others produced weapons of their own, dirks and daggers, mauls and clubs, broken spears and rusted swords. The gold cloaks were large men, young, strong, disciplined, well-armed and well-armoured. For twenty yards or more their shield wall held, and they cut a bloody road through the crowd, leaving dead and dying all round them. But they numbered only five hundred, and ten thousand had gathered to hear the shepherd. One watchman went down, then another. Suddenly small folk were slipping through the gaps in the line. Screaming curses, the shepherd's flock attacked with knives and stones, even teeth, swarming over the city watch and around their flanks, attacking from behind, flinging tiles down from roofs and balconies. Battle turned to riot, turned to slaughter. Surrounded on all sides, the gold cloaks found themselves hemmed in and swept under, with no room to wield their weapons. Many died on the points of their own swords. Others were torn to pieces, kicked to death, trampled underfoot, hacked apart with hoes and butchers' cleavers. Even the fearsome Sir Luther Largent could not escape the carnage. His sword torn from his grasp, Largent was pulled from his saddle, stabbed in the belly and bludgeoned to death with a cobblestone. His helm and head so crushed that it was only by its size that his body was recognized when the corpse wagons came the next day. During that long night, Septon Eustace tells us, the shepherd held sway over half the city, whilst strange lords and kings of misrule squabbled o'er the rest. Hundreds of men gathered round Watt the Tanner, who rode through the streets on a white horse, brandishing Lord Keltigar's severed head and bloody genitals, and declaring an end to all taxes. In a brothel on the street of Silk, the whores raised up their own king, a pale-haired boy of four named Gaiman, 
supposedly a bastard of the missing King Aegon II. Not to be outdone, a hedge knight named Sir Perkin the Flea crowned his own squire, Tristane, a stripling of sixteen years, declaring him to be a natural son of the late King Viserys. Any knight can make a knight, and when Sir Perkin began dubbing every sellsore thief and butcher's boy who flocked to Tristane's ragged banner, men and boys appeared by the hundreds to pledge themselves to his cause. By dawn, fires were burning throughout the city. Cobbler's Square was littered with corpses, and bands of lawless men roamed Flea Bottom, breaking into shops and homes and laying rough hands on every honest person they encountered. The surviving gold cloaks had retreated to their barracks, whilst gutter knights, mama kings, and mad prophets ruled the streets. Like the roaches they resembled, the worst of these fled before the light, retreating to hidey holes and cellars to sleep off their drunks, divvy up their plunder, and wash the blood off their hands. The gold cloaks at the old gate and the dragon gate sallied forth under the command of their captains, Sir Balon Birch and Sir Garth the Harelip, and by midday had managed to restore some semblance of order to the streets north and east of Rhaenysis Hill. Sir Medric Manderley, leading a hundred White Harbour men, did the same for the area northeast of Aegon's High Hill, down to the Iron Gate. The rest of King's Landing remained in chaos. When Sir Torren Manderley led his northmen down the hook, they found fishermongers square and river row swarming with Sir Perkin's gutter knights. At the river gate, King Tristane's ragged banner flew above the battlements, whilst the bodies of the captain and three of his sergeants hung from the gatehouse. The remainder of the mudfoot garrison had gone over to Sir Perkin. Sir Torren lost a quarter of his men fighting his way back to the Red Keep, yet escaped lightly compared to Sir Laurent Marbrand, who led a hundred knights and men-at-arms into Flea Bottom. Sixteen returned. Sir Laurent, Lord Commander of the Queen's Guard, was not amongst them. By evenfall, Rhaenyra Targaryen found herself sore beset on every side, her reign in ruins. The Queen wept when they told her how Sir Laurent died, Mushroom testifies, but she raged when she learned that Maidenpool had gone over to the foe, that the girl Nettles had escaped, that her own beloved consort had betrayed her, and she trembled when Lady Mazaria warned her against the coming dark, that this night would be worse than the last. At dawn, a hundred men attended her in the throne room, but one by one they slipped away or were dismissed until only her sons and I remained with her. My faithful mushroom, her grace called me, would that all men were true as you. I should make you my hand. When I replied that I would sooner be her consort, she laughed. No sound was ever sweeter. It was good to hear her laugh. Monken's true telling says naught of the queen laughing, only that her grace swung from rage to despair and back again, clutching so desperately at the iron throne that both her hands were bloody by the time the sun set. She gave command of the gold cloaks to Sir Balon Birch, captain at the Iron Gate, sent ravens to Winterfell and the Eyrie, pleading for more aid, ordered that a decree of attainder be drawn up against the mutants of Maidenpool, and named the young Sir Glendon Good Lord Commander of the Queen's Guard. Though only twenty and a member of the White Swords for less than a moon's turn, Good had distinguished himself during the fighting in Flea Bottom earlier that day. It was he who brought back Sir Lawrence's body, to keep the rioters from despoiling it. 
though the fool mushroom does not figure in Septon Eustace's account of the last day, nor in Munkin's true telling, both speak of the queen's sons. Aegon the Younger was ever at his mother's side, yet seldom spoke a word. Prince Joffrey, ten and three, donned squire's armor and begged the queen to let him ride to the dragon pit and mount Taraxes. I want to fight for you, mother, as my brothers did. Let me prove that I am as brave as they were. His words only deepened Rhaenyra's resolve, however. Brave they were, and dead they are, the both of them, my sweet boys. And once more, her grace forbade the prince to leave the castle. With the setting of the sun, the vermin of King's Landing emerged once more from their rat pits, hidey holes, and cellars, in even greater numbers than the night before. On Vesenia's hill, an army of whores bestowed their favours freely on any man willing to swear his sword to game and pale hair, King Cunny in the vulgar parlance of the city. At the river gate, Sir Perkin feasted his gutter knights on stolen food and led them down the riverfront, looting wharves and warehouses and any ship that had not put to sea, even as Wat the Tanner led his own mob of howling ruffians against the gate of the gods. Though King's Landing boasted massive walls and stout towers, they had been designed to repel attacks from outside the city, not from within its walls. The garrison at the Gate of the Gods was especially weak, as their captain and a third of their number had died with Sir Luther Largent in Cobbler's Square. Those who remained, many wounded, were easily overcome. Watt's followers poured out into the countryside, streaming up the King's Road behind Lord Keltigar's rotting head, toward where... Not even what seemed certain. Before an hour had passed, the King's Gate and the Lion Gate were open as well. The gold cloaks at the first had fled, whilst the lions at the other had thrown in with the mobs. Three of the seven gates of King's Landing were open to Rhaenyra's foes. The most dire threat to the Queen's rule proved to be within the city, however. At nightfall, the shepherd had appeared once more to resume his preaching in Cobbler's Square. The corpses from last night's fighting had been cleared away during the day, we are told, but not before they had been looted of their clothes and coin and other valuables, and in some cases of their heads as well. As the one-handed prophet shrieked his curses at the vile queen in the Red Keep, a hundred severed heads looked up at him, swaying atop tall spears and sharpened staffs. The crowd, Septon Eustace says, was twice as large and thrice as fearful as the night before. Like the queen they so despised, the shepherds' lambs were looking to the sky with dread, fearing that King Aegon's dragons would arrive before the night was out, with an army close behind them. No longer believing that the queen could protect them, they looked to their shepherd for salvation. But that prophet answered, "'When the dragons come, your flesh will burn and blister and turn to ash,' Your wives will dance in gowns of fire, shrieking as they burn, lewd and naked underneath the flames, and you shall see your little children weeping, weeping till their eyes do melt and slide like jelly down their faces, till their pink flesh falls black and crackling from their bones. The stranger comes, he comes, he comes, to scourge us for our sins. Prayers cannot stay his wrath, no more than tears can quench the flame of dragons. Only blood can do that. Your blood, my blood, their blood, 
Then he raised his right arm and jabbed the stump of his missing hand at Rhaenys's hill behind him, at the dragon pit, black against the stars. There the demons dwell, up there! Fire and blood, blood and fire! This is their city. If you would make it yours, first must you destroy them. If you would cleanse yourself of sin, first must you bathe in dragon's blood. For only blood can quench the fires of hell. From ten thousand throats a cry went up. Kill them! Kill them! And like some vast beast with ten thousand legs, the lambs began to move, shoving and pushing, waving their torches, brandishing swords and knives and other cruder weapons, walking and running through the streets and alleys toward the dragon pit. Some thought better and slipped away to home, but for every man who left, three more appeared to join these dragon slayers. By the time they reached the Hill of Rhaenys, their numbers had doubled. High atop Aegon's high hill across the city, Mushroom watched the attack unfold from the roof of Magor's Holdfast with the Queen, her sons, and members of her court. The night was black and overcast, the torches so numerous that it was as if all the stars had come down from the sky to storm the dragon pit, the fool says. As soon as word had reached her that the shepherd's savage flock was on the march, Rhaenyra sent riders to Sir Balon at the Old Gate and Sir Garth at the Dragon Gate, commanding them to disperse the lambs, seize the shepherd, and defend the royal dragons. But with the city in such turmoil, it was far from certain that the riders had won through. Even if they had, what loyal gold cloaks remained were too few to have any hope of success. Her grace had as well commanded them to halt the black water in its flow, says Mushroom. When Prince Joffrey pleaded with his mother to let him ride forth with their own knights and those from White Harbor, the queen refused. If they take that hill, this one will be next, she said. We will need every sword here to defend the castle. They will kill the dragons, Prince Joffrey said, anguished. Or the dragons will kill them, his mother said, unmoved. Let them burn. The realm will not long miss them. Mother, what if they kill Taraxes? the young prince said. The queen did not believe it. They are vermin, drunks and fools and gutter rats. One taste of dragon flame and they will run. At that the fool mushroom spoke up, saying, Drunks they may be, but a drunken man knows not fear. Fools, aye, but a fool can kill a king. Rats, that too but a thousand rats can bring down a bear. I saw it happen once, down there in Flea Bottom. This time Queen Rhaenyra did not laugh. Bidding her fool to hold his tongue or lose it, her grace turned back to the parapets. Only Mushroom saw Prince Joffrey go sulking off, if his testimony can be believed, and Mushroom had been told to hold his tongue. It was only when the watchers on the roof heard Sirach's roar that the prince's absence was noted. That was too late. No, the queen was heard to say. I forbid it, I forbid it. But even as she spoke, her dragon flapped up from the yard, perched for half a heartbeat atop the castle battlements, then launched herself into the night, with the queen's son clinging to her back, a sword in hand. After him, Rhaenyra shouted. All of you, every man, every boy, to horse, to horse. Go after him, bring him back, bring him back. He does not know, my son, my sweet, my son. 
Seven men did ride down from the Red Keep that night into the madness of the city. Munkin tells us they were men of honor, duty-bound to obey their queen's commands. Septon Eustace would have us believe that their hearts had been touched by a mother's love for her son. Mushroom names them dolts and dastards, eager for some rich reward, and too dull to believe that they might die. For once it may be that all three of our chroniclers have the truth of it, at least in part. Our Septon, our Maester, and our Fool do agree upon their names. These seven who rode were Sir Medric Manderley, the heir to White Harbour, Sir Loreth Lansdale and Sir Harold Dark, Knights of the Queen's Guard, Sir Harmon of the Reeds, called Ironbanger, Sir Giles Ironwood, an exiled knight from Dawn, Sir William Royce, armed with the famed Valyrian sword Lamentation, and Sir Glendon Good, Lord Commander of the Queen's Guard. Six squires, eight gold cloaks, and twenty men-at-arms rode with the seven champions as well, but their names, alas, have not come down to us. Many a singer has made many a song of the Ride of the Seven, and many a tale has been told of the perils they faced as they fought their way across the city, whilst King's Landing burned around them and the alleys of Flea Bottom ran red with blood. Certain of those songs even have some truth to them, but it is beyond our purview to recount them here. Songs are sung of Prince Joffrey's last flight as well. Some singers can find glory even in a privy, Mushroom tells us, but it takes a fool to speak the truth. Though we cannot doubt the prince's courage, his act was one of folly. We shall not pretend to any understanding of the bond between dragon and dragon rider. Wiser heads have pondered that mystery for centuries. We do know, however, that dragons are not horses to be ridden by any man who throws a saddle on their back. Sirax was the queen's dragon. She had never known another rider. Though Prince Joffrey was known to her by sight and scent, a familiar presence whose fumbling at her chains excited no alarm, the great yellow she-dragon wanted no part of him astride her. In his haste to be away before he could be stopped, the prince had vaulted onto Sirax without benefit of saddle or whip. His intent, we must presume, was either to fly Sirax into battle or, more likely, to cross the city to the dragon pit and his own Taraxes. Mayhaps he meant to loose the other pit dragons as well. Joffrey never reached the Hill of Rainies. Once in the air, Sirax twisted beneath him, fighting to be free of this unfamiliar rider, and from below stones and spears and arrows flew at him from the hands of the shepherd's blood-soaked lambs, maddening the dragon even further. Two hundred feet above Flea Bottom, Prince Joffrey slid from the dragon's back and plunged to the earth. Near a juncture where five alleys came together, the prince's fall came to its bloody end. He crashed first onto a steep-pitched roof before rolling off to fall another forty feet amidst a shower of broken tiles. We are told that the fall broke his back, that shards of slate rained down upon him like knives, that his own sword tore loose of his hand and pierced him through the belly. In Flea Bottom, men still speak of a candlemaker's daughter named Robin, who cradled the broken prince in her arms and gave him comfort as he died. But there is more of legend than of history in that tale. Mother, forgive me, Joffrey supposedly said with his last breath, though men still argue whether he was speaking of his mother the queen or praying to the mother above. Thus perished Joffrey Valerian, 
prince of Dragonstone and heir to the Iron Throne, the last of Queen Rhaenyra's sons by Lenor Valerian, or the last of her bastards by Sir Harwin Strong, depending on which truth one chooses to believe. The mob was not long in falling on his corpse. The candlemaker's daughter Robin, if she ever existed, was driven off. Looters tore the boots from the prince's feet and the sword from his belly, then stripped him of his fine, blood-stained clothes. Others, still more savage, began ripping at his body. Both of his hands were cut off so the scum of the street might claim the rings on his fingers. The prince's right foot was hacked through at the ankle, and a butcher's apprentice was sawing at his neck to claim his head, when the seven who rode came thundering up. There, amidst the stinks of flea-bottom, a battle was waged in the mud and blood for possession of Prince Joffrey's body. The Queen's knights at last reclaimed the boy's remains, save for his missing foot, though three of the seven fell in the fighting. The Dornishman, Sir Giles Erenwood, was pulled from his horse and bludgeoned to death, whilst Sir William Royce was felled by a man who leapt down from a rooftop to land upon his back. His famed sword, Lamentation, was torn from his hand and carried off, never to be found again. Most grievous of all was the fate of Sir Glendon Good, attacked from behind by a man with a torch who set his long white cloak afire. As the flames licked at his back, his horse reared in terror and threw him, and the mob swarmed over him, tearing him to pieces. Only twenty years of age, Sir Glendon had been Lord Commander of the Queen's Guard for less than a day. And even as blood flowed in the alleys of Flea Bottom, another battle raged round the dragon pit above, atop the Hill of Rainies. Mushroom was not wrong. Swarms of starving rats do indeed bring down bulls and bears and lions when there are enough of them. No matter how many the bull or bear might kill, there are always more, biting at the great beast's legs, clinging to its belly, running up its back. So it was that night. The shepherd's rats were armed with spears, long axes, spiked clubs, and half a hundred other kinds of weapons, including both longbows and crossbows. Gold cloaks from the dragon gate, obedient to the queen's command, issued forth from their barracks to defend the hill, but found themselves unable to cut through the mobs and turned back, whilst the messenger sent to the old gate never arrived. The dragon pit had its own contingent of guards, the dragon keepers, but those proud warriors were only seven and seventy in number, and fewer than fifty had the watch that night. Though their swords drank deep of the blood of the attackers, the numbers were against them. When the shepherd's lambs smashed through the doors, the towering main gates, sheathed in bronze and iron, were too strong to assault, but the building had a score of lesser entrances, and came clambering through windows, the dragon-keepers were overwhelmed and soon slaughtered. Mayhaps the attackers hoped to take the dragons within whilst they slept, but the clangor of the assault made that impossible. Those who lived to tell tales afterward speak of shouts and screams, the smell of blood in the air, the splintering of oak and iron doors beneath crude rams and the blows of countless axes. Seldom have so many men rushed so eagerly onto their funeral pyres, Grand Maester Munken wrote, but a madness was upon them. There were four dragons housed within the dragon pit. By the time the first of the attackers came pouring out onto the sands, all four were roused, awake, and angry. 
No two chronicles agree on how many men and women died that night beneath the dragon pit's great dome. Two hundred or two thousand, be that as it may. For every man who perished, ten suffered burns and yet survived. Trapped within the pit, hemmed in by walls and dome and bound by heavy chains, the dragons could not fly away or use their wings to evade attacks and swoop down on their foes. Instead, they fought with horns and claws and teeth, turning this way and that like bulls in a flea-bottom rat pit. But these bulls could breathe fire. The dragon pit was transformed into a fiery hell, where burning men staggered screaming through the smoke, the flesh sloughing from their blackened bones, writes Septon Eustace. But for every man who died, ten more appeared, shouting that the dragons must needs die. One by one, they did. Shrikos was the first dragon to succumb, slain by a woodsman known as Hob the Hewer, who leapt onto her neck, driving his axe down into the beast's skull as Shrikos roared and twisted, trying to throw him off. Seven blows did Hob deliver with his legs locked round the dragon's neck, and each time his axe came down he roared out the name of one of the seven. It was the seventh blow, the stranger's blow, that slew the dragon, crashing through scale and bones into the beast's brain. If Eustace is to be believed. Morgul, it is written, was slain by the burning knight, a huge brute of a man in heavy armor who rushed headlong into the dragon's flame with spear in hand, thrusting its point into the beast's eye repeatedly, even as the dragon flame melted the steel plate that encased him and devoured the flesh within. Prince Joffrey's Taraxes retreated back into his lair, we are told, roasting so many would-be dragon slayers as they rushed after him that his entrance was soon made impassable by their corpses. But it must be recalled that each of these man-made caves had two entrances, one fronting onto the sands of the pit, the other opening onto the hillside. It was the shepherd himself who directed his followers to break through the back door. Hundreds did howling through the smoke with swords and spears and axes. As Taraxes turned, his chains fouled, entangling him in a web of steel that fatally limited his movement. Half a dozen men and one woman would later claim to have dealt the dragon the mortal blow. Like his master, Taraxes suffered further indignity even in death, as the shepherd's followers sliced the membranes from his wings and tore them into ragged strips to fashion dragon-skin cloaks. The last of the four pit dragons did not die so easily. Legend has it that Dreamfire had broken free of two of her chains at Queen Helena's death. The remaining bonds she burst now, tearing the stanchions from the walls as the mob rushed her, then plunging into them with tooth and claw, ripping men apart and tearing off their limbs even as she loosed her terrible fires. As others closed about her, she took wing, circling the cavernous interior of the dragon pit, and swooping down to attack the men below. Taraxes, Shrikos, and Morgul killed scores, there can be little doubt, but Dreamfire slew more than all three of them combined. Hundreds fled in terror from her flames, but hundreds more, drunk or mad or possessed of the warrior's own courage, pushed through to the attack. Even at the apex of the dome, the dragon was within easy reach of archer and crossbowman, and arrows and quarrels flew at Dreamfire wherever she went, at such close range that some few even punched through her scales. Whenever she lighted, men swarmed to the attack, driving her back into the air. 
Twice the dragon flew at the dragon pit's great bronze gates, only to find them closed and barred and defended by ranks of spears. Unable to flee, Dreamfire returned to the attack, savaging her tormentors until the sands of the pit were strewn with charred corpses, and the very air was thick with smoke and the smell of burned flesh, yet still the spears and arrows flew. The end came when a crossbow bolt nicked one of the dragon's eyes. Half blind and maddened by a dozen lesser wounds, Dreamfire spread her wings and flew straight up at the great dome above in a last desperate attempt to break into the open sky. Already weakened by blasts of dragon flame, the dome cracked under the force of impact, and a moment later half of it came tumbling down, crushing both dragon and dragon slayers under tons of broken stone and rubble. The storming of the dragon pit was done. Four of the Targaryen dragons lay dead, though at hideous cost. Yet the shepherd was not yet triumphant, for the queen's own dragon remained alive and free. And as the burned and bloody survivors of the carnage in the pit came stumbling from the smoking ruins, Syrax descended upon them from above. Mushroom was amongst those watching with Queen Rhaenyra on the roof of Magor's holdfast. A thousand shrieks and shouts echoed across the city, mingling with the dragon's roar, he tells us. Atop the hill of Rhaenys, the dragon pit wore a crown of yellow fire, burning so bright it seemed as if the sun was rising. Even the queen trembled as she watched, the tears glistening on her cheeks. Never have I seen a sight more terrible, more glorious. Many of the queen's companions on the rooftop fled, the dwarf tells us. Fearing that the fires would soon engulf the entire city, even the Red Keep atop Aegon's high hill. Others took themselves to the castle sept to pray for deliverance. Rhaenyra herself wrapped her arms about her last living son, Aegon the Younger, clutching him fiercely to her bosom. Nor would she loose her hold upon him until that dread moment when Syrax fell. Unchained and riderless, Syrax might have easily flown away from the madness. The sky was hers. She could have returned to the Red Keep, left the city entirely, taken wing for Dragonstone. Was it the noise and fire that drew her to the Hill of Rainies? The roars and screams of the dying dragons? The smell of burning flesh? We cannot know, no more than we can know why Syrax chose to descend upon the shepherd's mobs, rending them with tooth and claw and devouring dozens, when she might as easily have rained fire on them from above, for in the sky no man could have harmed her. We can only report what happened as Mushroom, Septon Eustace, and Grand Maester Munkin have set it down for us. Many a conflicting tale is told of the death of the Queen's Dragon. Munkin credits Hob the Hewer and his axe, though this is almost certainly mistaken. Could the same man truly have slain two dragons on the same night and in the same manner? Some speak of an unnamed spearman a blood-soaked giant who leapt from the dragon pit's broken dome onto the dragon's back. Others relate how a knight named Sir Warwick Wheaton slashed a wing from Syrax with a Valyrian steel sword, lamentation most like. A crossbowman named Bean would claim the kill afterward, boasting of it in many a wine-sink and tavern, until one of the Queen's loyalists grew tired of his wagging tongue and cut it out. Possibly all these worthies, save Hob, played some role in the dragon's demise. But the tale most oft heard in King's Landing named the shepherd himself as the dragon slayer. As others fled, the story went, 
The one-handed prophet stood fearless and alone against the ravening beast, calling on the seven for succor, till the warrior himself took form thirty feet tall. In his hand was a black blade made of smoke that turned to steel as he swung it, cleaving the head of Syrax from her body. And so the tale was told, even by Septon Eustace in his account of these dark days, and so the singers sang for many years thereafter. The loss of both her dragon and her son left Rhaenyra Targaryen ashen and inconsolable, Mushroom tells us. Attended only by the fool, she retreated to her chambers, whilst her counsellors conferred. King's Landing was lost, all agreed. They must needs abandon the city. Reluctantly, her grace was persuaded to leave the next day at dawn. With the mud gate in the hands of her foes, and all the ships along the river burned or sunk, Rhaenyra and a small band of followers slipped out through the dragon gate, intending to make their way up the coast to Duskendale. With her rode the brothers Manderley, four surviving Queensguard, Sir Balon Birch and twenty gold cloaks, four of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting, and her last surviving son, Aegon the Younger. Mushroom remained behind, along with other members of the court, amongst them Lady Misery and Septon Eustace. Sir Garth the Harelip, captain of the gold cloaks at the Dragon Gate, was charged with the defence of the castle, a task for which the Harelip proved to have little appetite. Her grace had not been gone half a day when Sir Perkin the Flea and his gutter knights appeared outside the gates, demanding that the castle yield. Though outnumbered ten to one, the Queen's garrison might still have resisted. But Sir Garth chose instead to strike Rhaenyra's banners, open his gates, and trust to the mercy of the foe. The Flea proved to have no mercy. Garth the Harelip was dragged before him and beheaded, along with twenty other knights still loyal to the Queen, amongst them Sir Harmon of the Reeds, the Ironbanger, who had been one of the seven who rode. Nor was the mistress of Whisperers, Lady Mazaria of Lys, spared on account of her sex. Taken whilst attempting to flee, the White Worm was whipped naked through the city, from the Red Keep to the Gate of the Gods. If she were still alive by the time they reached the gate, Sir Perkin promised, she would be spared and allowed to go. She made it only half that distance, dying on the cobblestones with hardly a patch of her pale white skin left upon her back. Septon Eustace feared for his own life. Only the mother's mercy saved me, he writes, though it seems more likely that Sir Perkin did not wish to provoke the enmity of the faith. The flea also freed all the prisoners found in the dungeons below the castle, amongst them Grand Maester Orwile and the Sea Snake, Lord Corlys Valerian. Both were on hand the next day to bear witness as Sir Perkin's gangling squire Tristane mounted the Iron Throne. So too was the Queen Dowager, Alicent of House Hightower. Down in the Black Cells, Sir Perkin's men even found King Aegon's former master of coin, Sir Tyland Lannister, still alive. Though Rhaenyra's torturers had blinded him, pulled out his fingernails and toenails, cut off his ears, and relieved him of his manhood. King Aegon's master of whisperers, Laris Strong the Clubfoot, fared much better. The Lord of Harrenhal emerged intact from wherever he had been hiding. Like a man risen from the grave, he came striding through the halls of the Red Keep as if he had never left them, to be greeted warmly by Sir Perkin the Flea, and take a place of honour at the side of his new king. 
The Queen's flight brought no peace to King's Landing. Three kings reigned over the city, each on his own hill, yet for their unfortunate subjects there was no law, no justice, no protection, says the true telling. No man's home was safe, nor any maiden's virtue. This chaos endured for more than a moon's turn. Maesters and other scholars writing of this time oft take their cue from Munken and speak of the moon of the three kings. Other scholars prefer the moon of madness. But this is a misnomer, as the shepherd never claimed kingship, styling himself a simple son of the seven. Yet it cannot be denied that he held sway over tens of thousands from the ruins of the dragon pit. The heads of the five dragons that his followers had slain had been set up on posts, and every night the shepherd would appear amongst them to preach. With the dragons dead, and the threat of immolation no longer imminent, the prophet turned his wrath upon the high-born and wealthy. Only the poor and humble would ever see the halls of the gods, he declared. Lords and knights and rich men would be cast down in their pride and avarice to hell. Cast off your silks and satins and clothe your nakedness in rough-spun robes, he told his followers. Throw away your shoes and walk barefoot through the world as the Father made you. Thousands obeyed, but thousands more turned away, and each night the crowds that came to hear the prophet grew smaller. At the other end of the street of the sisters, Gaiman Palehair's queer kingdom blossomed atop Vesenia's hill. The court of this four-year-old bastard king was made up of whores, mummers, and thieves, whilst gangs of ruffians, sellswords, and drunkards defended his rule. One decree after another came down from the House of Kisses, where the child king had his seat, each more outrageous than the last. Gaiman decreed that girls should henceforth be equal with boys in matter of inheritance, that the poor be given bread and beer in times of famine, that men who had lost limbs in war must afterward be fed and housed by whichever lord they had been fighting for when the loss took place. Gaiman decreed that husbands who beat their wives should themselves be beaten, irrespective of what the wives had done to warrant such chastisement. These edicts were almost certainly the work of a Dornish whore named Sylvena Sand, reputedly the paramour of the little king's mother Essie, if Mushroom is to be believed. Royal decrees also issued forth from atop Aegon's high hill where Sir Perkin's catspaw Tristane sat the Iron Throne, but those were of a very different nature. The squire king began by repealing Queen Rhaenyra's unpopular taxes and dividing the coin in the royal treasury amongst his own followers. He followed that with a general cancellation of debt, raised three score of his gutter knights to the ranks of the nobility, and answered King Gaiman's promise of free bread and beer for the starving by granting the poor the right to take rabbits, hares, and deer from the Kingswood as well, though not elk nor boar. All the while, Sir Perkin the Flea was recruiting scores of surviving gold cloaks to Tristane's banner. With their swords he took control of the Dragon Gate, the King's Gate, and the Lion Gate, giving him four of the city's seven gates and more than half of the towers along its walls. In the early days after the Queen's flight, the shepherd was by far the most powerful of the city's three kings. But as the nights passed, the number of his followers continued to dwindle. The small folk of the city woke as if from a bad dream, Septon Eustace wrote, and like sinners waking cold and sober after a night of drunken debauchery and revel, they turned away in shame. 
hiding their faces from one another and hoping to forget. Though the dragons were dead and the queen fled, such was the power of the Iron Throne that the commons still looked to the Red Keep when hungry or afraid. So as the power of the shepherd waned on the hill of Rhaenys, the power of King Tristane Truefire, as he now styled himself, waxed atop Aegon's high hill. Much and more was happening at Tumbleton as well, and it is there we must next turn our gaze. As word of the unrest at King's Landing reached Prince Daron's host, many younger lords grew anxious to advance upon the city at once. Chief amongst them were Sir John Roxton, Sir Roger Corn, and Lord Unwin Peake, but Sir Hubert Hightower counselled caution, and the two betrayers refused to join any attack unless their own demands were met. Orthwhite, it will be recalled, wished to be granted the great castle of Highgarden, with all its lands and incomes, whilst hard Hugh Hammer desired nothing less than a crown for himself. These conflicts came to a boil when Tumbleton learned belatedly of Aemon Targaryen's death at Harrenhal. King Aegon II had not been seen nor heard from since the fall of King's Landing to his half-sister Rhaenyra, and there were many who feared that the Queen had put him secretly to death, concealing the corpse so as not to be condemned as a kinslayer. With his brother Aemon slain as well, the Greens found themselves kingless and leaderless. Prince Daron stood next in the line of succession. Lord Peak declared that the boy should be proclaimed as Prince of Dragonstone at once. Others, believing Aegon II dead, wished to crown him king. The two betrayers felt the need of a king as well, but Daron Targaryen was not the king they wanted. We need a strong man to lead us, not a boy, declared Hard Hugh Hammer. The throne should be mine. When bold John Roxton demanded to know by what right he presumed to name himself a king, Lord Hammer answered, the same right as the conqueror, a dragon. Untruly, with Vagar dead at last, the oldest and largest living dragon in all Westeros was Vermithor, once the mount of the old king, now that of hard Hugh the Bastard. Vermithor was thrice the size of Prince Daron's she-dragon Tessarion. No man who glimpsed them together could fail to see that Vermithor was a far more fearsome beast. Though Hammer's ambition was unseemly in one born so low, the bastard undeniably possessed some Targaryen blood and had proved himself fierce in battle and open-handed to those who followed him, displaying the sort of largesse that draws men to leaders as a corpse draws flies. They were the worst sort of men, to be sure, sellswords, robber knights, and like rabble, men of tainted blood and uncertain birth, who loved battle for its own sake and lived for rapine and plunder. Many had heard the prophecy that the hammer would smash the dragon and took it to mean that Hard Hugh's triumph was foreordained. The lords and knights of Old Town and the Reach were offended by the arrogance of the betrayer's claim, however, and none more so than Prince Daron Targaryen himself, who grew so wroth that he threw a cup of wine into Hard Hugh's face. Whilst Lord White shrugged this off as a waste of good wine, Lord Hammer said, Little boys should be more manly when men are speaking. I think your father did not beat you often enough. Take care I do not make up for his lack. The two betrayers took their leave together and began to make plans for Hammer's coronation. When seen the next day, Hard Hugh was wearing a crown of black iron, to the fury of Prince Daron and his true-born lords and knights. One such 
Sir Roger Corn made so bold as to knock the crown off Hammer's head. A crown does not make a man a king, he said. You should wear a horseshoe on your head, blacksmith. It was a foolish thing to do. Lord Hugh was not amused. At his command, his men forced Sir Roger to the ground, whereupon the blacksmith's bastard nailed not one, but three horseshoes to the knight's skull. When Corn's friends tried to intervene, daggers were drawn and swords unsheathed, leaving three men dead and a dozen wounded. That was more than Prince Darren's loyalist lords were prepared to suffer. Lord Unwin Peake and a somewhat reluctant Hobart Hightower summoned eleven other lords and landed knights to a secret council in the cellar of a Tumbleton Inn to discuss what might be done to curb the arrogance of the base-born dragon riders. The plotters agreed that it would be a simple matter to dispose of White, who was drunk more oft than not, and had never shown any great prowess at arms. Hammer posed a greater danger, for of late he was surrounded day and night by lick-spittles, camp-followers and cell-swords eager for his favour. It would serve them little to kill White and leave Hammer alive, Lord Peak pointed out. Hard Hugh must needs die first. Long and loud were the arguments in the inn beneath the sign reading the bloody caltrops, as the lords discussed how this might best be accomplished. Any man can be killed, declared Sir Hobart Hightower, but what of the dragons? Given the turmoil at King's Landing, Sir Tyler Norcross said, Tessarion alone should be enough to allow them to retake the Iron Throne. Lord Peak replied that victory would be a deal more certain with Vermithor and Silverwing. Mark Ambrose suggested that they take the city first, then dispose of White and Hammer after victory had been secured. But Richard Rodden insisted such a course would be dishonourable. We cannot ask these men to shed blood with us, then kill them. Bold John Roxton settled the dispute. We kill the bastards now, he said. Afterward, let the bravest of us claim their dragons and fly them into battle. No man in that cellar doubted that Roxton was speaking of himself. Though Prince Darren was not present at the council, the Caltrops, as the conspiracies became known, were loath to proceed without his consent and blessing. Owen Fossaway, Lord of Cider Hall, was dispatched under cover of darkness to wake the prince and bring him to the cellar, that the plotters might inform him of their plans. Nor did the once gentle prince hesitate when Lord Unwin Peake presented him with warrants for the execution of Hard Hugh Hammer and Ulf White, but eagerly affixed his seal. Men may plot and plan and scheme, but they had best pray as well, for no plan made by man has ever withstood the whims of the gods above. Two days later, on the very day the Caltrops planned to strike, Tumbleton woke in the black of night to screams and shouts. Outside the town walls, the camps were burning. Columns of armoured knights were pouring in from north and west, wreaking slaughter. The clouds were raining arrows, and a dragon was swooping down upon them, terrible and fierce. Thus began the Second Battle of Tumbleton. The dragon was sea smoke. His rider, Sir Adam Valerian, determined to prove that not all bastards need be turned cloaks. How better to do that than by retaking Tumbleton from the two betrayers, whose treason had stained him? Singers say Sir Adam had flown from King's Landing to the God's Eye, where he landed on the sacred Isle of Faces and took counsel with the green man. The scholar must confine himself to known fact, and what we know is that Sir Adam flew far and fast, 
descending on castles great and small whose lords were loyal to the queen to piece together an army. Many a battle and skirmish had already been fought in the lands watered by the trident, and there was scarce a keep or village that had not paid its due in blood. But Adam Valerian was relentless and determined and glib of tongue, and the river lords knew much and more of the horrors that had befallen Tumbleton. By the time Sir Adam was ready to descend on Tumbleton, he had near four thousand men at his back. Benjicott Blackwood, the twelve-year-old Lord of Raventree, had come forth, as had the widowed Sabbath of Frey, Lady of the Twins, with her father and brothers of House Viperin, Lords Stanton Piper, Joseph Smallwood, Derek Darry and Lionel Deddings had scraped together fresh levies of greybeards and green boys, though all had suffered grievous losses in the autumn's battles. Hugo Vance, the young Lord of Wayfarer's Rest, had come with three hundred of his own men, plus Black Trombo's mearish sellswords. Most notably of all, House Tully had joined the war. Sea Smoke's descent upon River Run had at last persuaded that reluctant warrior Sir Elmo Tully to call his banners for the Queen, in defiance of the wishes of his bedridden grandsire, Lord Grover. A dragon in one's courtyard does wonders to resolve one's doubts, Sir Elmo is reported to have said. The great host encamped about the walls of Tumbleton outnumbered the attackers, but they had been too long in one place. Their discipline had grown lax, drunkenness was endemic in the camp, Grand Maester Munken says, and disease had taken root as well. The death of Lord Ormond Hightower had left them without a leader, and the lords who wished to command in his place were at odds with one another. So intent were they upon their own conflicts and rivalries that they had all but forgotten their true foes. Sir Adam's night attack took them completely unawares. Before the men of Prince Darren's army even knew they were in a battle, the enemy was amongst them, cutting them down as they staggered from their tents, as they were saddling their horses, struggling to don their armour, buckling their sword belts. Most devastating of all was the dragon. Sea smoke came swooping down again and yet again, breathing flame. A hundred tents were soon afire, even the splendid silken pavilions of Sir Hobart Hightower, Lord Unwin Peak, and Prince Steron himself. Nor was the town of Tumbleton reprieved. Those shops and homes and septs that had been spared the first time were engulfed in dragon flame. Adaran Targaryen was in his tent asleep when the attack began. Ulf White was inside Tumbleton, sleeping off a night of drinking at an inn called the Bawdy Badger that he had taken for his own. Hard Hugh Hammer was within the town walls as well, in bed with the widow of a knight slain during the first battle. All three dragons were outside the town, in fields beyond the encampments. Though attempts were made to wake Ulf White from his drunken slumber, he proved impossible to rouse. Infamously, he rolled under a table and snored through the entire battle. Hard Hugh Hammer was quicker to respond. Half-dressed, he rushed down the steps to the yard, calling for his hammer, his armour, and a horse, so he might ride out and mount Vermithor. His men rushed to obey, even as sea smoke set the stables ablaze. But Lord John Roxton had claimed Lord Footley's bedchamber along with Lord Footley's wife, and was already in the yard. When he spied Hard Hugh, Roxton saw his chance and said, Lord Hammer, my condolences. Hammer turned, glowering. For what? he demanded. You died in the battle, Bold John replied, drawing Orphan Maker 
and thrusting deep into Hammer's belly before opening the bastard from groin to throat. A dozen of Hardhue's men came running in time to see him die. Even a Valyrian steel blade like Orphan Maker little avails a man when it is one against ten. A bold John Roxton slew three before he was slain in turn. It is said that he died when his foot slipped on a coil of Hugh Hammer's entrails, but perhaps that detail is too perfectly ironic to be true. Three conflicting accounts exist as to the manner of death of Prince Darren Targaryen. The best known claims that the prince stumbled from his pavilion with his night clothes afire, only to be cut down by the merish sellsword Black Trombo, who smashed his face in with a swing of his spiked morning star. This version was the one preferred by Black Trombo, who told it far and wide. The second version is more or less the same, save that the prince was killed with a sword, not a morning star, and his slayer was not Black Trombo, but some unknown man-at-arms who, like as not, did not even realize whom he had killed. In the third alternative, the brave boy known as Darren the Daring did not even make it out at all, but died when his burning pavilion collapsed upon him. That is the version preferred by Munkin's true telling, and by us. Whatever the manner of his death, it is beyond dispute that Daron Targaryen, youngest son of King Viserys I by Queen Alicent, died at the Second Battle of Tumbleton. The feigned princes who appeared during the reign of Aegon III using his name have been conclusively shown to be impostors. In the sky above, Adam Valerian could see the battle turning into a rout below him. Two of the three enemy dragon riders were dead, but he would have had no way of knowing that. He could doubtless see the enemy dragons, however. Unchained, they were kept beyond the town walls, free to fly and hunt as they would. Silverwing and Vermithor oft coiled about one another in the fields south of Tumbleton, whilst Tessarion slept and fed in Prince Darren's camp to the west of the town, not a hundred yards from his pavilion. Dragons are creatures of fire and blood, and all three roused as the battle bloomed around them. A crossbowman let fly a bolt at Silverwing, we are told, and two score mounted knights closed on Vermithor with sword and lance and axe, hoping to dispatch the beast whilst he was still half asleep and on the ground. They paid for that folly with their lives. Elsewhere on the field, Tessarion threw herself into the air, shrieking and spitting flame, and Adam Valerian turned sea smoke to meet her. A dragon's scales are largely, though not entirely, impervious to flame. They protect the more vulnerable flesh and musculature beneath. As a dragon ages, its scales thicken and grow harder, affording even more protection, even as its flames burn hotter and fiercer. Where the flames of a hatchling can set straw aflame, the flames of Beleriand or Vagar in the fullness of their power could and did melt steel and stone. When two dragons meet in mortal combat, therefore, they will oft employ weapons other than their flame. Claws black as iron, long as swords and sharp as razors, jaws so powerful they can crunch through even a knight's steel plate, tails like whips whose lashing blows have been known to smash wagons to splinters, break the spine of heavy destriers, and send men flying fifty feet in the air. The battle between Tessarion and Sea Smoke was different. History calls the struggle between King Aegon II and his half-sister Rhaenyra the Dance of the Dragons, but only at Tumbleton 
did the dragons ever truly dance. Tessarion and Sea Smoke were young dragons, nimbler in the air than their older kin. Time and time again they rushed one another, only to have one or the other veer away at the last instant. Soaring like eagles, stooping like hawks, they circled, snapping and roaring, spitting fire, but never closing. Once the Blue Queen vanished into a bank of cloud, only to reappear an instant later, diving on sea smoke from behind to scorch his tail with a burst of cobalt flame. Meanwhile, sea smoke rolled and banked and looped. One instant he would be below his foe, and suddenly he would twist in the sky and come around behind her. Higher and higher the two dragons flew, as hundreds watched from the roofs of Tumbleton. One such said afterward that the flight of Tessarion and sea smoke seemed more mating dance than battle. Perhaps it was. The dance ended when Vermithor rose roaring into the sky. Almost a hundred years old and as large as the two young dragons put together, the bronze dragon with the great tan wings was in a rage as he took flight, with blood smoking from a dozen wounds. Riderless, he knew not friend from foe, so he loosed his wrath on all, spitting flame to right and left, turning savagely on any man who dared to fling a spear in his direction. One knight tried to flee before him, only to have Vermithor snatch him up in his jaws, even as his horse galloped on. Lords Piper and Deddings, seated together atop a low rise, burned with their squires, servants, and sworn shields when the Bronze Fury chanced to take note of them. An instant later, sea smoke fell upon him. Alone of the four dragons on the field that day, Sea Smoke had a rider. Sir Adam Valerian had come to prove his loyalty by destroying the two betrayers and their dragons, and here was one beneath him, attacking the men who had joined him for this fight. He must have felt duty-bound to protect them, though surely he knew in his heart that his Sea Smoke could not match the older dragon. This was no dance, but a fight to the death. Vermithor had been flying no more than twenty feet above the battle when sea smoke slammed into him from above, driving him shrieking into the mud. Men and boys ran in terror or were crushed as the two dragons rolled and tore at one another. Tails snapped and wings beat at the air, but the beasts were so entangled that neither was able to break free. Benjikot Blackwood watched the struggle from atop his horse fifty yards away. Vermithor's size and weight were too much for Sea Smoke to contend with, Lord Blackwood told Grand Maester Munken many years later, and he would surely have torn the silver grey dragon to pieces, if Tessarion had not fallen from the sky at that very moment to join the fight. Who can know the heart of a dragon? Was it simple bloodlust that drove the Blue Queen to attack? Did the she dragon come to help one of the combatants? If so, which? Some will claim that the bond between a dragon and dragon rider runs so deep that the beast shares his master's loves and hates. But who was the ally here? And who the enemy? Does a riderless dragon no friend from foe? We shall never know the answers to those questions. All that history tells us is that three dragons fought amidst the mud and blood and smoke of Second Tumbleton. Sea smoke was first to die when Vermithor locked his teeth into his neck and ripped his head off. Afterward, the bronze dragon tried to take flight with his prize still in his jaws, but his tattered wings could not lift his weight. After a moment, 
he collapsed and died. Tosarion, the Blue Queen, lasted until sunset. Thrice she tried to regain the sky, and thrice failed. By late afternoon she seemed to be in pain, so Lord Blackwood summoned his best archer, a longbowman known as Billy Burley, who took up a position a hundred yards away, beyond the range of the dying dragon's fires, and sent three shafts into her eye as she lay helpless on the ground. By dusk, the fighting was done. Though the river lords lost less than a hundred men, whilst cutting down more than a thousand of the men from Old Town and the Reach, Second Tumbleton could not be accounted a complete victory for the attackers as they failed to take the town. Tumbleton's walls were still intact, and once the king's men had fallen back inside and closed their gates, the queen's forces had no way to make a breach, lacking both siege equipment and dragons. Even so, they wreaked great slaughter on their confused and disorganized foes, fired their tents, burned or captured almost all their wagons, fodder and provisions, made off with three quarters of their war horses, slew their prince, and put an end to two of the king's dragons. At moonrise, the river lords abandoned the field to the carrion crows, fading back into the hills. One of them, the boy Ben Blackwood, carried with him the broken body of Sir Adam Valerian, found dead beside his dragon. His bones were dressed at Raventree Hall for eight years, but in 138 AC his brother Alan would have them returned to Driftmark and entombed in Hull, the town of his birth. On his tomb is engraved a single word, Loyal. Its ornate letters are supported by carvings of a seahorse and a mouse. On the morning after the battle, the conquerors of Tumbleton looked out from the town walls to find their foes gone. The dead were strewn all around the city, and amongst them sprawled the carcasses of three dragons. One remained. Silverwing, good Queen Alison's mount in days of old, had taken to the sky as the carnage began circling the battlefield for hours, soaring on the hot winds rising from the fires below. Only after dark did she descend to land beside her slain cousins. Later, singers would tell of how she thrice lifted Vermithor's wing with her nose, as if to make him fly again, but this is most like a fable. The rising sun would find her flapping listlessly across the field, feeding on the burned remains of horses, men and oxen. Eight of the thirteen Caltrops lay dead, amongst them Lord Owen Fossaway, Mark Ambrose, and bold John Roxton. Richard Rodden had taken an arrow to the neck and would die the next day. Four of the plotters remained, amongst them Sir Hobart Hightower and Lord Unwin Peak. And though Hardhugh Hammer had died and his dreams of kingship with him, the second betrayer remained. Ulf White had woken from his drunken sleep to find himself the last dragon-rider, and possessed of the last dragon. The hammer's dead, and your boy as well, he is purported to have told Lord Peak. All you got left is me. When Lord Peak asked him his intentions, White replied, We march, just how you want it. You take the city, I'll take the bloody throne. How's that? The next morning, Sir Hobart Hightower called upon him to thrash out the details of their assault upon King's Landing. He brought with him two casks of wine as a gift, one of Dornish red and one of Arbor gold. Though Ulf the Sot had never tasted a wine he did not like, he was known to be partial to the sweeter vintages. No doubt Sir Hobart hoped to sip the sour red, 
whilst Lord Ulf quaffed down the arbor gold. It's something about Hightower's manner. He was sweating and stammering and too hearty by half, the squire who served them testified later, pricked White's suspicions. Wary, he commanded that the Dornish red be set aside for later, and insisted Sir Hobart share the arbor gold with him. History has little good to say about Sir Hobart Hightower, that no man could question the manner of his death. Rather than betray his fellow Caltrops, he let the squire fill his cup, drank deep, and asked for more. Once he saw Hightower drink, Ulf the Sot lived up to his name, putting down three cups before he began to yawn. The poison in the wine was a gentle one. When Lord Ulf went to sleep, never to awaken, Sir Hobart lurched to his feet and tried to make himself wretch. But too late. His heart stopped within the hour. No man ever feared Sir Hobart's sword, Mushroom says of him, but his wine cup was deadlier than Valyrian steel. Afterward, Lord Unwin Peak offered a thousand golden dragons to any knight of noble birth who could claim Silverwing. Three men came forth. When the first had his arm torn off and the second burned to death, the third man reconsidered. By that time, Peak's army, the remnants of the great host that Prince Darren and Lord Ormond Hightower had led all the way from Old Town, was falling to pieces as deserters fled Tumbleton by the score with all the plunder they could carry. Bowing to defeat, Lord Unwin summoned his lords and sergeants and ordered a retreat. The accused turncloak Adam Valerian, born Adam of Hull, had saved King's Landing from the Queen's foes, at the cost of his own life. Yet the Queen knew nothing of his valour. Rhaenyra's flight from King's Landing had been beset with difficulty. At Rosby she found the castle gates barred at her approach, by the command of the young woman whose claim she had passed over in favour of a younger brother. Young Lord Stokeworth's castellan granted her hospitality, but only for a night. They will come for you, he warned the queen, and I do not have the power to resist them. Half of her gold cloaks deserted on the road, and one night her camp was attacked by broken men. Though her knights beat off the attackers, Sir Balan Birch was felled by an arrow, and Sir Lionel Bentley, a young knight of the Queen's Guard, suffered a blow to the head that cracked his helm. He perished, raving the following day. The Queen pressed on toward Duskendale. House Darklin had been amongst Rhaenyra's strongest supporters, but the cost of that loyalty had been high. Lord Gunther had lost his life in the Queen's service, as had his uncle Stephen. Duskendale itself had been sacked by Sir Criston Cole. Small wonder, then, that Lord Gunther's widow was less than overjoyed when her grace appeared at her gates. Only the intercession of Sir Harold Dark persuaded Lady Meredith to allow the Queen within her walls at all. The Darks were distant kin to the Darklins, and Sir Harold had once served as a squire to the late Sir Stephen, and only upon the condition that she would not remain for long. Once safely behind the walls of the Dun Fort, overlooking the harbour, Rhaenyra commanded Lady Darklin's maester to send word to Grand Maester Gerardis on Dragonstone, asking that a ship be sent at once to take her home. Three ravens flew, the town chronicles assert. Yet, as the days passed, no ship appeared. Nor did any reply return from Gerardis on Dragonstone, to the Queen's fury. Once again she began to question her Grand Maester's loyalty. The Queen had better fortune elsewhere. 
From Winterfell, Cregan Stark wrote to say that he would bring a host south as soon as he could, but warned that it would take some time to gather his men. For my realms are large, and with winter upon us, we must needs bring in our last harvest or starve when the snows come to stay. The Northman promised the queen ten thousand men, younger and fiercer than my winter wolves. The Maiden of the Vale promised aid as well, when she replied from her winter castle, the Gates of the Moon. But with the mountain passes closed by snow, her knights would need to come by sea. If House Valerian would send its ships to Gulltown, Lady Jane wrote, she would dispatch an army to Duskendale at once. If not, she must needs hire ships from Bravos and Pentos, and for that she would need coin. Queen Rhaenyra had neither gold nor ships. When she had sent Lord Corlys to the dungeons, she had lost her fleet, and she had fled King's Landing in terror of her life without so much as a coin. Despairing and fearful, her grace walked the castle battlements of Duskendale weeping, growing ever more grey and haggard. She could not sleep and would not eat, nor would she suffer to be parted from Prince Aegon, her last living son. Day and night the boy remained by her side, like a small, pale shadow. When Lady Meredith made it plain that the queen had overstayed her welcome, Rhaenyra was forced to sell her crown to raise the coin to buy passage on a bravosi merchantman, the Violan. Sir Harold Dark urged her to seek refuge with Lady Arryn in the Vale, whilst Sir Medric Manderley tried to persuade her to accompany him and his brother Sir Torren back to White Harbour. But her grace refused them both. She was adamant on returning to Dragonstone. There she would find dragon's eggs, she told her loyalists. She must have another dragon, or all was lost. Strong winds pushed the Violand closer to the shores of Driftmark than the queen might have wished, and thrice she passed within hailing distance of the sea snake's warships, but Rhaenyra took care to keep well out of sight. Finally, the Bravosi put into the harbour below the Dragonmont on the eventide. The Queen had sent a raven from Duskendale to give notice of her coming, and found an escort waiting as she disembarked with her son Aegon, her ladies, and three Queensguard knights. The gold cloaks who had ridden with her from King's Landing stayed at Duskendale, whilst the Mandalays remained aboard the Violand, bound for White Harbour. It was raining when the Queen's party came ashore and hardly a face was to be seen about the port. Even the dockside brothels appeared dark and deserted, but her grace took no notice. Sick in body and spirit, broken by betrayal, Rhaenyra Targaryen wanted only to return to her own seat, where she imagined that she and her son would be safe. Little did the queen know that she was about to suffer her last and most grievous treachery. Her escort, forty strong, was commanded by Sir Alfred Broom, one of the men left behind when Rhaenyra had launched her attack upon King's Landing. A broom was the most senior of the knights at Dragonstone, having joined the garrison during the reign of the old king. As such, he had expected to be named as Castellan when Rhaenyra went forth to seize the Iron Throne. But Sir Alfred's sullen disposition and sour manner inspired neither affection nor trust, Mushroom tells us, so the queen had passed him over in favour of the more affable Sir Robert Quince. When Rhaenyra asked why Sir Robert had not come to meet her, Sir Alfred replied that the Queen would be seeing our fat friend at the castle. And so she did. Though Quince's charred corpse was burned beyond all recognition when they came upon it, 
Only by his size did they know him, for Sir Robert had been enormously fat. They found him hanging from the battlements of the gatehouse beside Dragonstone's steward, captain of the guard, master-at-arms, and the head and upper torso of Grand Maester Gerardis. Everything.